Do you remember the first time you saw those things in Jordan when you said? Day one. Day one? Day one. Was He's it? 12 years old. He steps in front of me on July 6th of 2006. <laughs> and we're on the range at Brook Hollow, and I said, hit the shot. And he did. Yeah. I said, hit this shot. And he did. And it was impressive. It was one of those, wow, are you kidding me moments. I'd seen it at a professional level, but I hadn't seen it out of a 12-year-old. Welcome back to the Golfer's Journal podcast presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. My name's Tom Coyne. Thanks so much for joining us. Number one ball in golf. How does one become the number one ball in golf? Well, that means that the Titleist Pro V1 and the Pro V1X are the number one choice on the PGA Tour and at every level of competitive golf. So good enough for those players. Probably, I don't know, probably good enough for me. Uh, Certainly, certainly good enough for me. It's also the choice of our guest today, renowned instructor Cameron McCormick. Uh, and also the choice of his star pupil, Jordan Spieth. Now, we're going to talk a little about his relationship with Jordan in the podcast today, uh, but there's also a lot of good stuff here for your own game uh, and some really interesting insights about what it's like to teach and be the instructor for someone who is pretty much the very best at what they do. What's that like? Uh, We're also going to be sharing some lessons that we taped. If you like the stuff we did with the short game chef that Casey did, um, and a lot of people did, Uh, We did a similar series of videos that are going to be on our YouTube channel uh, where Cameron helps me out getting a little extra pop out of my driver, flighting the ball, hitting the stock 100-yard shot. Then we have a full-length lesson with one of our Broken Tea Society members there, all done at his uh, incredible complex there, Trinity Forest. Um, So that was, what a treat that was, feeling pretty good about my game since that conversation and since that day. Uh, But that'll be coming out soon on the Golfer's Journal YouTube channel. But there's also plenty in this conversation that hopefully will have you thinking the right things, thinking good things about playing better golf. Uh, Some some announcements first. Glen Arvin, wow. Huge reviews coming back from the event at Glen Arvin. Uh, Place just looked insane. Then we uh, we were at the bridge. I was there for that. I love it. I've been there before, but I love it more even more now. Quaker Ridge. So we've been on a bit of a heater with the events. Thanks to everyone who's been a part of them. Uh, but my favorite, my the one I'm most anticipating is coming up. On May 17th, registration opens. And this isn't a lottery. This is first come, first serve for Waynesboro Country Club. My home course, right down the street here. Um, and we're not just doing an event there because it's because I'm a homer or it's convenient. Uh, we are reopened after a pretty extensive Andrew Green renovation. So really excited to share that uh, with you. So hopefully you'll come on out to the Philly suburbs and play some golf at Waynesboro. And I'm trying to talk Alice, and I think she's into it after party at our house. So uh, so bonus. Um, but it's 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 turned out pretty cool. Uh, if you've been to Waynesboro before, there's a lot of new surprises. Um, and if you haven't been, please come check it out. And then on May 23rd, the lottery opens for an event that really needs no promotion, uh, our two-man, which is always our biggest event, and this year even bigger happening at Sleepy Hollow. The event is August 21st. Oh, and I should have mentioned the Waynesboro event is August 28th. But the Sleepy event is August 21st, and the lottery opens on May 23rd. All right, you've got those dates. Now let's turn things over to Cameron who has lived a very interesting and exceptional golf life with some huge moments, of course, but maybe no moment bigger than the day a kid showed up at his range, a kid who could quite simply hit all the shots. 
Cameron, what a beautiful spot you have here. It's amazing. It's pretty Welcome. sweet. Uh, thank you. It's great <laughs> to be here. <laughs> Incredible setup. And, uh, and thanks for taking the time. Yeah, I mean, my pleasure. We know how busy you are, so we really appreciate it. Yeah. So I just want to start off by asking you, is golf that hard or do we make it that hard? It's that hard. It's that hard? Period. It's that hard. I mean, you're talking about such a small golf ball, such a small hitting surface area. And then you throw in the complication, you've got a round golf ball and you're hitting it with a round club head. Yeah. <laughs> right? Not quite the barrel that is a baseball bat, but still, it's a challenging game. And the uncertainties that lie in the, um, the golf course, whether it's the variability in lie, the grass conditions, the change in speeds, um, the weather. It's, mm -hmm. When you throw it all into the mix and you shake it up, it's a very complex cocktail and challenging. Um, so I think that, I mean, the lesson to be learned for me as a player through my amateur collegiate and professional days and me as a coach is that I mean, tolerance, mistake tolerance is such an important um, skill to learn. And as I say that, what I immediately kind of throw back to is um, John Rahm's interview at a, a recent event. I'm not too sure which one it was where he talked about Ted Lasso and being a goldfish, right? Mm -hmm. Short term memory is such an important thing in the game of golf to have some mistake tolerance and some amnesia to what's going on. So. Uh, we have a greater chance when we do that of uh, forgetting about the bad stuff, not looking in the rearview mirror and, and forging forward and making swings or passes at the ball, chip shots, pitch shots, putts that have no burden of consequence from what happened prior to them. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a long-winded way to, to answer a very short question. Is it that hard? Yeah, it is. It is hard. <laughs> it is. It, I agree. It mm. is hard. And as you said, it's complex. Now, you have so much information to impart. You've been doing this for 25 a, years, a so. fair number of years. Yeah. Um, and in a lesson, you can give a player, what's that line of not making it too complicated, yeah. uh, of trying to, to keep it simple enough and that it is a game and our, what we're trying to put a ball in a hole, keep it that, that simple. But there's also so much you can give them. You can go down so many rabbit holes. How do you draw that line when you're when you're working with a player? How long do we have? Oh. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, there is no doubt. The runway that a coach has to affect change and to show someone that they're capable of doing something that they maybe formally didn't think they were capable of doing, it's very short. Mm -hmm. It's uh, a matter of golf balls. It's three to five shots before that person standing in front of you, whether they verbalize it or whether it stays internal, is going to be questioning what it is that you're telling them. And so you can extend that runway as a coach by having just a frank conversation. Look, I'm not too sure whether this first thing I ask you to do is going to be the thing that changes or whether we're going to have to um, audible, to use that football expression, to some other cue or some other play or some other drill or some other training aid that we may um, need to use to affect change. And I'm not too sure whether this is going to be the only thing that needs to happen. Uh, to view coaching through the coach's eyes to understand that someone sits in front of you and says, I want to do X or Y, or both of those things. Uh, and to see this developmental pathway, mm -hmm. but to know that it's going to take time to get there. But the person saying in front of you wants to get there now. And so I have one foot on the accelerator because I'm impatient and greedy as the next person. Uh, and I understand that from the golfer's standpoint. Um, but I also have the foot on the brake um, to know that We've got to go through this process together. Um, and that's an important point, right? Together. It's, it's a coaching relationship. It's sure. advice and it's um, sweat equity. Uh, and it's pushing through what might be difficult initially to make it easier over time. 
Uh, so there's no short way to answer that question other than to say, yes, it's difficult, but as long as there's buy-in from both sides, um, things can happen sooner rather than later, but they can't happen with a level of impatience that causes someone to spit the bit sure. uh, in four to five swings, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a nice science experiment, experiment that we run when we're giving advice to players, never knowing whether it's going to stick the first time or whether it's going to take some sort of adaptation or change in the process. Now, what do you want when someone's working with you and comes mm -hmm. up for a lesson and, and say mm -hmm. they're just maybe passing through, or they're, they're here for one lesson yep. or um, what is something that you want to make sure that your students leave every lesson with? That's such a great question. What I hope that every person gets from me is an understanding how to solve their own problems. So they're not necessarily reliant on the feedback and advice that a coach it can and does provide when they're away from the coach. Um, they can read the feedback of golf ball, of contact. They can look at their own swing if they're into that, into mm -hmm. videoing or using a mirror for feedback. Um, they know what they need to do without a shadow of a doubt. They've got an action plan or a game plan for either a training aid use or a drill use such that I know, I hope, that they're gonna show up the next time and be better by some amount, whether that's 5% or 100%, whether we're going to continue possibly in a follow-up lesson, even though you frame the question as if I saw someone for the first time or just one time, um, I hope to develop a relationship with people that means that I get to see them on a recurring mm -hmm. basis, whether that's once a year, once every five months or once a week. Um, but yeah, to answer the question, it's to give them the information so they can self-coach themselves and make sure they show up the next time that much better. Now, you work with uh, regular players, member mm -hmm. players. Average deals um, and joys, for sure. Sure. Uh, and you also work with a lot of elite, the most elite mm -hmm. golfers out there. What's the biggest difference between the member golfer and the elite golfer, aside from talent? Time. Time. Yeah. Time to be able to put the reps, time in the saddle, sweat equity, however you want to term it. Uh, the professional players that have dedicated their life to this or the high school players who will commit eight hours a day on their weekends or in the summertime they'll go out and play 18 and practice after that or maybe 36 is they have that um, that resource of time to apply to it and they have a willingness a passion a desire uh, um, it's as if that's their purpose um, so with the availability of time any person taking receiving coaching can make improvement. What's the toughest thing to teach? You talked a little bit about patience, but is there, or is there something in the swing? Is there something that you see that comes into the studio and mm -hmm. you just think? Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> no, there's not a problem that I face from time to time or regularly that is really overly challenging other than the problems that don't manifest in movement. And uh. what I mean by that is, Someone can demonstrate a really technically sound putting stroke. Someone could demonstrate a really technically sound short game and or uh, swing. But yet when you describe uh, the experience in the golf course that does not parallel the mm. quality of technique that they're demonstrating, um, then it tells me that there's something on a deeper level, right? The body's just, the mind's the engine. The body is just the means the brain uses to express motion and express flight. Um, and so when it's a brain type of problem, a psychological type of problem, 
as a coach, you need to tap into a different set of tools, different set yeah. of resources and um, hit different objectives. But for most players, they don't understand that. We want to believe that there is a physical origin for a problem. And sometimes it's just a psychological problem. And so as a coach of 25 years of dealing with both the physical side mm -hmm. and also understanding there is this mental component that's integral to uh, good shots and good swings and good performances, I've had to expand my knowledge and my tool set as a coach to address those things. So those are the most difficult things just generally as coaches, seeing things as technical versus this uh, blend of technical um, and also um, psychological yeah. is a pretty important thing for us to learn. For sure. Now, when you're working on the technical, is it useful? You probably have a lot of players come up and say, I have the problem that so-and-so has, or I want to swing like Rory, or I mm -hmm. want to do this move that Colin does. Is, is, is that useful to compare swings between what people see on TV? Um, or is that often, uh, or are people sort of maybe playing at the wrong thing there? Yeah, I think they're playing at the wrong thing. From a coach's standpoint, I think it's important that we understand that there are styles, mm -hmm. there's permutations or, or pieces of movement. You just described a few of them. I want to do it like Victor Hovland or Colin Morikawa or Adam Scott or Jim Furyk. Um, I've never had that, by the way. Say, never had that, 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 that request. I want more of this. Exactly. Um, not disparaging Jim Furyk. I love his motion. I love oh, to watch him. We'd all love to like it's Jim Furyk. Fantastic. Sure. Um, very robotic and very controlled. Uh, but I think that to covet what other people have without understanding, there's matchups and movements that work for you. So understanding your own DNA, your swing DNA, what's important to you is far more important than, um, yeah. Uh, Eddie Pepperell in a podcast that we did with him explained it. I'll paraphrase or I might mix the metaphor, but he explained it this way. As a young player, he used to describe um, his experience of receiving coaching like um, he's in a supermarket and he's the shopping cart and his coach was pushing the shopping cart and pulling things out and putting them in the shopping cart, meaning deciding for Eddie Pepperell what was important for Eddie Pepperell. And that may be a piece of Colin Morikawa and a piece of Victor Hovland and a piece of Adam Scott. And then over the course of his development as a young professional, he realized that it was the inverse of that. He was mm. pushing the shopping cart and he was the one that was going to decide the pieces that were important to him. And I think it's a, somewhere between those two that the player needs to understand that her piece is important. The coach helps that player decide the pieces that are important for them, for their unique um, movement capabilities as humans, mm -hmm. um, their goals and desires out of the game. Um, so yeah, it's, it's certainly um, not appropriate for someone to covet what they see on TV and try sure. and chase that. Now, those swings that we do see or have seen as a mm -hmm. swing coach, Tell me, two, tell me some swings that you admire, admire maybe from golf's past mm -hmm. and then some contemporary swings that you, that you don't coach. That I uh, mean players that I don't coach? That you don't coach. Um, Keith Mitchell for its aesthetic um, structure, position, and rhythm. Yeah. Uh, Cameron Young for its structure, yet its immense power from what is not taught, which is that moment in time where he's floating at the top of his mm. swing and pausing uh, and to achieve such a great rate of acceleration from that um, is impressive. Uh, John Rahm is a study on being a Ferrari off the blocks to be able to create such 
speed from such a short range of motion. Um, those are the, th the ones that stand out in my mind. But this is actually a difficult question, which is interesting. I have to answer this question or you ask me the question. It's a difficult one for me to answer because I also don't do the same thing as a coach. I study other swings mm -hmm. um, to understand how they work, but not to the extent that um, I, I'm overly curious about um, the aesthetic. Okay. And I don't know whether that makes too much sense because understanding how they work, but yet not really looking at them with um, gushing desire and love sure. is the place I'm coming from. Uh, times past, um, Tom Hertzer was always a favorite swing of mine. Um, Nick Faldo, because of the metamorphosis he went through to go from relatively average to professional to best in the world is a study. And it's certainly someone as a young guy, uh, young player, I wanted to evolve into. Um, being an Australian, uh, Ian Baker Finch was always a favorite player of mine um, because of the fluidity. I think overall, as I look at these, and I could go on with names from past mm -hmm. or present, what attracts me to a golf swing is rhythm, um, balance, before the structural positions that a person might hit um, because the styles that players use are innumerable um, but yet the glue that sticks a swing together is balance and rhythm and timing and um, yes amateur golfers can learn a lot by making sure that they have aspects of their movement that they improve, but they could also learn a lot and they could play better golf by embracing um, that which would affect their timing and that would that which would affect the rhythm that you use in a swing. Are those the toughest things to teach? Are those the most natural, just sort of athletic, when you think of players with that have great rhythm and timing, it kind of almost seems like they were born with it. Is that something that you can learn and get better at? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can definitely learn to um, improve a person's rhythm and timing, but there is an aspect that's inherent to who that, who that person is. Um, there's, I mean, I think of the people around me that I've heard sing <laughs> mm -hmm. or try and um, match a rhythm, maybe with tapping their feet or, or beating a drum. There are those that are more inclined to have that as an innate skill versus less. Um, the hardest things to teach are um, teaching around movement limitations. Um, whether those are structural, meaning um, joint-based, you don't have the room as the hip bone and the top of the femur interact to rotate through the pelvis as you need to, or whether they're tissue-based, you don't have the flexibility, you don't have the strength to be able to move in the way. Those are the most difficult things to teach around, and those create limitations on performance far more than um, teaching someone to balance better or be... Um, or possess a better rhythm. How would you teach someone to have a little more rhythm? Uh, put on music, put on, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can certainly teach a person to swing to a cadence. So yeah. that would be uh, metronome-based. You can um, use a variety of different tools. Uh, the flexible clubs, the orange whip is sure. a training aid that's yeah. very effective um, to uh, add to to a club. Uh, a tool like um, a water bottle. So you might have seen. 
uh, a, a golf club that has a water bottle attached to it. So for that person that's very handsy off the ball, they're using their wrist very quickly. Right. And to have a water bottle that's attached either to the shaft or underneath the shaft to move that club at such a speed as the water doesn't slosh around very quickly, that there's actually no movement in that water bottle is a very effective way to teach tempo off the ball. Um, so yeah, there are a variety of different strategies. That's the, um, the knowledge that you earn and learn over the years of being a coach after 25 years you've got this deep playbook that you're not limited to um being a one and done type of play caller for sure now in here in the studio mm -hmm. talking about golf swing a lot of golf swing technical stuff um how do we get from here mm -hmm. to out there yeah it's the best way you know they talk about i want to get out there i want to play golf i don't want to play golf swing i can't stop playing golf swing maybe it's just because i love to think about the golf swing and i and sometimes i'd rather make a perfect golf swing than shoot a certain score which is is my own personal issues perhaps but how do we take this and best get it out there yeah it's a multifaceted answer that i give you because you touched on a couple of subjects and if i took them in reverse there it's the need to play golf swing there's a need to improve and that improvement oftentimes requires some level of attention, like cognitive activity. Uh, we carry swing feels or swing thoughts to make sure that the next swing that you make is changed in some way by some amount. Maybe I need to get my hand path an inch or two inches higher. Mm -hmm. So that's the nature of the change and there's the amount of change. And the way we learn movement skills, it's through some level of conscious activity or conscious behavior. Those are the principles of learning. Um, we start um, unconsciously incompetent. We don't know what to do and therefore we're not good at it. And then we move through this continuum of learning to be unconsciously competent. We don't need to think about something and it just shows up. So most of the time, the way to transfer something better is to learn it better. To where when you go to the golf course, it's a simple cue or a simple swing feel and it causes it to show up at the right amount um, to the right effect. So that's the first rate limiter to transference to the golf course. The next piece, which I thought where the question was gonna stop was, sometimes it's just the burden of the golf course. Mm -hmm. We got one shot versus on the driving range, we got a whole bucket of balls. For sure. And that's the weight of the 300 pound pencil. Oh my gosh, I get one shot to perform now, and I gotta write a score down at the end of this hole, yeah. and I gotta sign for this score at the end of my round, and three other people, if I'm playing in a foursome, know about my score. So there's that kind of social proof, social consequence. And then there's the conversations that happen in the ladies 19th hole, or the men's 19th hole, or the locker room, right? What did he shoot? How did he play? Well, let me tell you about this shot, right? There's the psychological piece to it. And there's a variety of different psychological strategies that as a coach, I've had to learn over the years to help a person transfer the same beautiful golf swing, the same golf shots you can hit on the driving range out to the golf course. Sometimes it means um, creating adversity, difficulty, what in sports psychological circles they called desirable difficulties on the range. Mm -hmm. Hey, let's have a little wager on this next shot on the driving range, or let's call across a group of friends and show them how good you are at this shot, or let's film this mm -hmm. and show it to others. So there are a way to increase consequences on the range to help you experience the pressure that you might face in the golf course. But then there's also the reverse of that that exists in the golf course, how to dial down the, excuse my French, the give a shitter yeah. on the golf course yeah. to where you play a whole lot more 
carefree, which is different than careless. Um, that going back to, all the way to the, the front end of, of the first question you ask, mistake amnesia, forgiveness, um, embrace that it is a difficult game. And the more you burden yourself over the possibility of mistake, which is kind of forward thinking, you're not there yet, you haven't hit the shot yet, but you're anxious over it. Well, the more you carry forward the mistake that you did make, you just make the next one that more difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so that mindset that you're going to be forgiving to the mistakes that you invariably will make and almost the psychological trick of missing an advance. Like, oh yeah, I see the water on the right over there. Well, in my mind, I'm going to pretend I've already done it. And what would I feel like if I've already done it? I'm having to hit again. Well, I'm just going to accept. And it makes it a little bit, a little bit easier to step to the tee and step to the shot and let it get, let it, let it come out. I like that. I mean, that's why our, you know, the second player, All-American kind of thing, so good. right? It's, it's so good. The mistakes already the truth, happened. Right? Yeah. yeah. And you've learned from it, or at least you've let go. Exactly. You've let go. I mean, so we've talked a little bit about sometimes the physical limitations that a, that a player brings or you have to work around. Our players in the Broken Tea Society that are in the index experiment, a lot of us are working on our physiques. Um, yeah. Some of us are trying to get in better shape. Uh, what is sort of an area that you would say, all right, if you, if you have five to 10 minutes a day to try and get in better shape as a golfer, uh, generally speaking, this is probably where you want to put your time in. I would, and there are resources, there are people in this world that you need to consult with. So I give you my perspective as a coach, being around mm -hmm. many of the best um, strength and conditioning coaches in the world and chiropractors in the world. And there are two aspects to physical conditioning that I think people can largely improve and see great benefit from it. Um, one is their balance, the proprioceptive balance, um, standing over a, your feet and being able to know where your body is in space. Because um, that in movement, when you add the complexity of a golf swing, um, the shift from right to left, the rotation as you're shifting from right to left and all that goes with that, it's challenging. Mm -hmm. I mean, then you toss in the varied lies that we get, downhill, uphill, side hill, challenging. And then the second piece of that is if you work on flexibility, that's great, but strength, stability, and power um, in a certain segment or section of the body, and that's core strength. So yeah. uh, glute strength, leg strength, uh, abdominal, oblique strength. Um, so important in the golf swing, far more important than um, what general gym work uh, might target. So the target muscles in general gym work might be uh, pec, it might be delts, it might be um, certain uh, muscles throughout the back, right? Um, but yeah, when you go to the core, that's the most essential engine to help the general population of golfers uh, improve what they're capable of doing and probably what they're trying to do as well. Absolutely. Crush that core if you have those five to ten minutes. Yeah. Now, we'd love to keep you here all day, uh, Cameron, but you mentioned that Mr. Spieth is coming in here later. Mm -hmm. uh, one of probably your best known pupil. You've worked with a lot of great players around the world. But I just want to know, um, you know, when you start talking about the golf swing, you obviously have so much passion for it and have so much information to give. Uh, when we hear Jordan talking about his golf, uh, uh, sometimes when he's mic'd up out there uh, with Greller, uh, he can get into it as well. So a session between the two of you, is it a battle to get 
a word in. How, what's the dynamic like uh, when you're working with Jordan? It's far more of a collaborative conversation that is a, I tell you what to do and you do it. Yeah. And that's how it is with all elite level players. Uh, they know themselves mm -hmm. and that's what makes them elite. Whether they have an understanding that's seen through a video camera uh, or they just have an understanding of how movement feels to them. Um, it's eerie and it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I talk to elite female and elite male level players about swing sensations because they'll pull out swing sensations from events. It'll go into a swing sensation that they felt on a particular shot in a particular round in a particular situation where they were aiming what that swing felt like in a certain position to such a nuance that, yeah, it's eerie. And as I already mentioned, it makes the hair stand up in the back of my neck. And that's how and why it should be a conversation that's a collaboration versus it being explicitly, I give instructions and you just follow them blindly. Yeah. Whereas with someone that doesn't have a, a deep resource of those successful swings to tap into, it needs to be far more of, here are the ideas I think you need to use or an idea you need to use and we're going to use it until you're successful in using it. So it's far more prescriptive with the more average player. Um, specific to Jordan, how does it look like or what does it sound like with him specifically? Um, yes, he is a very vocal person. He has ideas in his head and he needs to hear himself say them versus outwardly versus just the internal dialogue. All players that you see, PGA, LPGA Tour, have an internal dialogue going on. The beauty of Jordan Spieth is that we get to have a front row seat to that conversation that's going mm. on. Um, even recreational players have that voice in their head that tells them you can or can't do something or what you should or shouldn't be doing, right? And you stand in front of me, sure. you're smiling, you know that happens. Um, yeah, and Jordan just needs to get it out. And I'm the sounding board for that, just like Michael's the sounding board for that, just like anyone around him will be the sounding board for that because we know that that's how to bring out the best in him. I mean, it's gotta be, if I go to an event and I see you there working with a player mm -hmm. or I see, you know, I see a coach there at a, at a range working with, you know, an elite best in the world player. I always wonder, like, what, what could you, what are you going to say? Are you looking for a specific thing? Are you worried about messing up a Picasso? It's got to be, do you feel the pressure there? Uh, when it already to to my untrained eye, it looks perfect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, how careful do you have to be? How do you draw those lines of uh, when you're working with someone who's who can already kind of hit all the shots? Yeah, it's a super delicate uh, double-edged sword, I guess you could say. It's uh, you have a person standing in front of you that wants to get the best out of themselves. Yeah. Um, they understand much better than you as a coach what this golf course is going to demand. Um, they know, well, they have a sense for the current state of their game. So you've got this sometimes conflict between current state and desired state. And they have belief in their ability to bridge those two things immediately. Uh, so there's this optimizing desired state. There's this current state. And as a coach, I always come at it from what does this person want versus what do they need to get the best out of their game for this week. It all comes back down to a conversation. Hey, we could try this, but know this, that five swings in or 10 shots in, if this isn't bearing fruit, if this isn't allowing us to tap into what you feel and what we agree that you might need for this event, then we can go back to the current state mm -hmm. 
and the current state, assuming it's good enough uh, to succeed on any given week, um, might be what the go with is. Or the go with might be one practice session in, I'm better because of that action plan we did. They're really adaptable. That's going back to the original question you asked, what's the difference between the elite level player versus the recreational player? And I said time. Yeah. If I had to give you a 1A answer to that, the other piece would be adaptability. Mm. Yeah, every player that I've ever been around can do something and they can make that change fairly immediately. And whether that change is usable goes to the attentional piece. How much attention can they apply to movement to get the effect they want while still having enough attention to focus on the impact they're making, the target they're making to affect the right shot, the desired shot. Do you remember the first time you saw those things in Jordan when you said? Day one. Day one? Day one. Was he's it? 12 years old. He steps in front of me on July 6th of 2006. <laughs> and we're on the range at Brook Hollow and I said, hit the shot. And he did. Yeah. I said, hit this shot. And he did. And it was impressive. It was one of those, wow, are you kidding me moments. And I'd seen it maybe at some level, but not with a 12-year-old. I'd seen it with, with back then, buy.com, coin fairy, web.com, whichever the tour was called, or whatever the tour was called back then. It's changed to primary sponsors, as you know. So I'd seen it at a professional level, but I hadn't seen it out of a 12-year-old. So it was an are you kidding me moment. Did you get a sense that maybe that was also the day that your life was changing a little no, bit? not at all. No? No, I sensed that my life changed only given responsibility. Mm. And I remember consulting with a then mentor, still mentor of mine, who was the head professional at Brook Hollow. His name's Jerry Smith. And I said, I'm concerned that I know what this person needs to do, uh, but I'm concerned that he can already do it so well that if we go down this pathway and we go as far as I feel like we need to, it might screw him up. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the mindset that we need to have operating, not primarily, but almost the secondary mindset that we need to have operating as coaches to know that is the cost of doing something greater than the cost of doing nothing. Yeah. In, in Jordan's case as a 12-year-old, after consultation with my mentor, I said, yes, it is. And I explained it to him. I said, this is the path forward. Here's the roadmap. His dad was in that conversation. And they said, let's go. Let's go. Now, for players who want to get to Let's Go, mm -hmm. but don't have that time, yeah. our Broken Tea Society members who are trying to get better and who have 10 to 15 minutes a day to dedicate to this journey of getting better at golf, yep. what can, what's the best thing that they can do with limited time? Consult with a coach. Okay. Describe your goals. Make sure that coach understands the time constraint that you're under. And that coach will hopefully have the most high mileage play, the thing that'll move you closer to your goals with the shortest um, time investment. Um, and then you just wash and repeat on that whenever you can apply time to it. Okay. And if we have a member who's headed out tomorrow and happens to be watching this, mm -hmm. listening to this, they've mm -hmm. got a big match. Yeah. They've, got, they've got a big round. They're going somewhere special tomorrow. What's just the best thing you can tell them? All right, here's, here's your tip for the day without knowing anything about how you swing the golf club. Yeah, I'd go back to the mindset piece without knowing anything about how a person swings the golf club, without, any, without knowing anything about the problem they need to solve to get better out of their game. Know that the best swings that you make are going to be the most relaxed and in advance of making the swing, forgiven swings. Now, what are you outside of golf, outside of the golf swing? Mm -hmm. Tell me some things that you, Cameron McCormick, are passionate about. Unfortunately, there's nothing. I, think, I, I was going to say, and, is and there anything think that, outside of golf? Yeah, I think that makes me 
better at what I do versus if I had interest outside of golf. Yeah. Golf for me is, um, it's my passion project. It's my, my mission map is to be the best coach that I can be. And so if I'm doing anything outside, like actively coaching um, a live person in front of me, it's um, coaching across the globe using technology, the tools of technology that um, allow me to coach someone that might be in Uganda or in Switzerland or Australia or New Zealand. Uh, and if I'm not coaching, then I'm reading and researching or I'm just consuming golf. Absolutely. Well, growing up playing golf in Australia, give me something that I always find it's interesting in my travels to take something that's from Ireland, Scotland, or wherever I might be and say, oh, I wish we did that mm -hmm. back at home or something that we do here that we'd be better over there. Is there something in Australian golf that you'd say, uh, we should do that in America or something that you picked up in American golf that they should do over there? Australian golf is to a large extent far more accessible to those mm -hmm. that want to play it. The best country clubs, even though they don't call them that, um, they don't require umpteen thousands of dollars to join. So the initiations are low, the dues are low. Um, is that any less of a good product in Australia? No, not at all. Um, grass is good. The, a green surface is good. The experience is, it's far more organic, down to earth, pull card. It's less frill. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what makes it more approachable. Um, I think that's the thing that stands out about the golf experience in Australia. It feels like the golf experience in the UK um, that you can just rock up and pay a green fee and play a pretty amazing golf course. Um, outside of that, if there's one golf experience that you get in Australia, perhaps, that in the United States that you don't get, just as a compare or contrast, it's the bunker experience, which if you know anything about the bunker experience in Australia is you go to a golf course and they're pretty much all outstanding. The um, faces are just smooth, the ball rolls down to the bottom and um, the sand conditions uh, give you such great ball control. I mean, mm. the spin shots, the chunk and rolls, the Anytime they play a tournament down there, they always talk about the, the bunkering. Australians are typically pretty, pretty good bunker today. players. Yeah. 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 I, sure. I consider that a pretty high proficiency in my game too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, there you go. I'm a, I'm a proof to that. Now we don't, we're not just going to have players watching. We're going to have coaches watching this as well mm -hmm. uh, uh, for a chance to uh, watch one of the, the greatest teachers in golf. Um, what's some advice that you would give to, to coaches? Uh, that are watching this or, or where do you think you know your passion just watching you coach today mm -hmm. uh, your ability to sort of pick things up instantly uh, and to have not not necessarily a remedy but but something to work on right there yeah um, obviously you've had a ton of you've been doing this for a while mm -hmm. uh, but what's something that you can impart to impart to coaches that are watching this yeah so I'm speaking to a person that I might have been 10 15 20 right. years ago I'd say that develop your coach's eye and that coach's eye is developed through time on task. Do it a lot. Find a job that you can teach a lot. Um, even if it's, it means doing it remotely a lot through um, uh, online coaching. Mm -hmm. uh, the second is that um, we get further by standing on the foot of on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. um, so having a mentor around you that you can learn from. Um, the third piece to that is the language that you use, the specificity of the words you use. Um, I cringe when I watch or hear other coaches 
and this is not a knock other than it being a critique for them to improve when they talk about the club needs to be here or there or do this or that. And the way I describe it to coaches that I'm mentoring is I say, imagine I had my eyes closed. Would I know what you're talking about? And the answer is no. Mm. When they describe positions or movements or intents that the golfer should have, using very, very, very general statements, the more specificity that you can have with a person in front of you, the more they'll get it more immediately. And they'll have an understanding walking out of the lesson to know to a level of exactness what they need to expect from themselves. So and those three pieces there. Well, thank you. And you did that with me today. You gave me some really specific things and feelings to work on. Uh, so thank you so much for that. My pleasure. You can watch those uh, on our YouTube channel, The Golfer's Journal. I can't thank you enough for your time and everything you've given to our Broken Tea Society members to work on in their own quest. And uh, Cameron, it's just been an honor. Thanks for the time, Tom. Thank Appreciate you. it. Cheers. Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you enjoyed this episode, we strongly encourage you to become a member of the Golfer's Journal. Or if you already are, to please share it with your friends. As a reader-supported publication, we couldn't do it without you. We also couldn't do it without our partners, and they are, of course, Titleist, Scotty Cameron, Footjoy, Link Soul, Links and Kings, Charles Schwab, and BMW. See you next time on the Golfer's Journal podcast.